thank you guys all for joining today and happy Friday as usual. Um, so we're very lucky today to have Dr. Matt Shuba here with us today. Uh, he's a critical care doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, he's written some work that I thought was very interesting that I thought would really benefit the audience that I hope that you guys enjoy as much as I did about something called intensivism. Um, and I think uh, the line that he puts in his uh, biography sort of explains it very succinctly and is what really captivated me, which is that uh, he's interested in minimally invasive, maximally attentive medical care. And that line really spoke to me. So I'm hoping he can share some of his thoughts uh, about intensivism and the art of critical care with us. Uh, thank you, sir, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once again, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I've uh, been a big fan of Maryland critical care for a long time. The, pro the critical care project, uh, I think, has been formative in my development for a number of years, so I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Um, as I started to talk about, in case you were here earlier, this presentation does not take uh, the full time, um, and that is on purpose so that we can kind of have a discussion and talk about what, what sort of issues you think are the most interesting and most pressing for your setting. So the uh, you know CME mandated objectives are listed here, and this kind of uh, more or less just covers what we'll talk about: um, challenges and benefits of providing minimally invasive critical care, identifying barriers to thoughtful high-value care, and leveraging clinical reasoning to decrease unnecessary interventions. So the line about uh, zentensivism being minimally invasive and maximally attentive really uh, does define zentensivism really well. Um, another way that I define it to, to sort of open the conversation, this is a holistic approach to the art of caring for the critically ill patients. Um, and I mean holistic and really comprehensive looking at the, at the patient, both from their um, sort of the humanistic side of things, from the medical side of things, and, and really trying to be comprehensive and not focusing on any one issue. Um, sometimes the most helpful thing is to define what this doesn't look like. So um, the first thing that we'll do is we'll go through a case. Um, there's a rapid response patient uh, who's coming from the medical floor to your unit. Um, she's a 68 year old woman. She has advanced malignancy. Uh, she's frail and she's newly developed hypoxemia and hypotension. Uh, you, you come to the bedside and she just looks overall terrible. You get that sort of sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Uh, her mean arterial pressure is only 45. Uh, her heart rate's 125. She's breathing for 34 times a minute, uh, somewhat labored, um, and is only saturating 87% on a non-rebreather. <clears throat> her uh, lab workup is notable for a lot of mild sort of lab abnormalities. She's got you know stage two acute kidney injury, and her chest X-ray shows a low bar infiltrate. <clears throat> so again, in the uh, sort of let's say the anti-zentensivism approach, uh, you're handed off that this patient wants everything done. Um, and that's the first words that are that are said to you, and and you're taking this at face value. So let's begin the, the train here. Uh, the team leader comes to the bedside and is sort of directive, anxious, intense, kind of shouting orders, trying to get people assembled, uh, trying to you know sort of assemble uh, a team around various tasks that are that need to happen for this patient. They're sort of an erratic focus, and we kind of just dove right in and 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 uh, and went for it. Uh, one of your trainees comes up to you and says, well, this patient, you know, they might tire out at some point, so maybe we should go ahead and get them intubated now. Um, so we preemptively move to that. Um, unexpectedly, she develops peri-intubation hypotension, um, and now, <clears throat> now we're placing crash central lines. Um, the clinical mo momentum that starts here continues to unfold, um, and I will tell you right now that as an introduction, this is the first slide in which you'll see a QR code on the slide, um, and these QR codes are, are listed to references that I think are incredibly high yield. 
um, and in sort of the areas that I'll be talking about. So this is the first one by Jacqueline Cruiser from Northwestern, which is just like a fantastic paper on clinical momentum. Um, so, so the train has left the station, things are starting to unfold. Um, now we say, well, this, probably, this patient probably needs a bronch. Her hemoglobin is a little bit uh, borderline, so maybe we'll transfuse her. Maybe that'll help things. We start opening up sort of this panoply of, uh, of other investigations. Um, your resident opens up the computer and sees all the red flags and epic that the labs are abnormal. So we start to try to point all the labs in the right direction. Um, whether that's actually has anything to do with what's going on with the patient right now is, is irrelevant because we're just going to make all those flags go away. Um, in the meanwhile here, as we're sort of focusing on what our next tasks are, this patient's having, you know, over the next hours or days, having escalating organ failures, we're increasing the amount of invasiveness that we're providing. Maybe we're on dialysis now. We're opening up a pathway to potentially developing chronic critical illness. Um, and in the back of our minds, this, the, the team knows that this patient might be dying, but at the beginning they told us or their family told us they want everything done. So we kind of just are running with it. The end result of all this is now we have potentially increased the uh, suffering this patient may, may endure. We've certainly increased the uh, capacity for complications um, by, by moving right away to invasive care, we've decreased her ability to maintain any level of consciousness and potentially decreased dignity. And I think when you heard about this patient at the beginning, you knew her survival odds were low and I'm not sure how much we modified them. Now we're gonna reset and we're going to come at it from the viewpoint of his intensivist. Same case, same severity of illness, and let's walk right back into it. Um, the Zen intensive care team is at the bedside now. It's not the tense, anxious team uh, who's going to take, you know, the same approach. So when we hear that this patient wants everything done, this is a signal to us that there's work that needs to be done. We, we, we're not going to take that at face value. Uh, we need to explore that a little bit. We need to explore not only what the patient means or what the family thinks the patient means by that, um, but also what is feasible and what is possible for us to accomplish. This is a patient, and there are many similar patients who really need uh, a focus on early goal-directed palliation. So we're going to rapidly work to identify baseline health status, identify the patient's values and goals, and then we're going to try to um, reconcile that with if they're medically achievable goals or not. The whole priority here is to avoid and alleviate suffering whenever possible. And even if we go down the path that we're going to provide very aggressive care, it doesn't mean that we're going to ignore symptoms or minimize symptoms along the way because we're worried about getting uh, in the way of whatever our hemodynamic goals are. Um, and at this point, this is an opportunity for us to explore time-limited trials uh, of care and, and sort of talk about what that might look like. The manner that we bring to the bedside is warm and collaborative, but we're still firm and measured. It doesn't mean we don't resuscitate this patient. We just, we, we move quickly. We arrived at the bedside at this with the same pace that the first team did, um, but we're doing things in the most measured way possible. Um, and we're really trying to tread lightly as we uh, move into the, what this patient, the rest of this patient's hospital course is gonna look like. For the sake of comparison, um, this is what intervention intensity, uh, and this is my conception of what intervention intensity looks like for a usual care group. So in the, at time zero, when the patient enters the ICU, um, we sort of, uh, you know, run wild and, and, and activate all the different sort of procedures, tests, medications, things that are very high intensity. And it takes us a long time, days, sometimes weeks to start to peel those things back and, and, and start to, to start to move away from that. At hour zero, this intensive care model might not look all that different because if the patient needs resuscitation, the patient gets resuscitated. Um, we don't uh, take that mean arterial pressure of 45 and just say, well, you know, maybe it's an adaptive response. You know, we still resuscitate shock. We still move, move uh, quickly. 
The difference is as soon as that initial golden hour period uh, of resuscitation is achieved and those and those immediate goals are met, we start getting out of the patient's way as soon as possible, start to remove goal, uh, remove obstacles from them uh, in terms of uh, experiencing consciousness and and uh, and sort of move away from anything that we've uh, imposed upon them as soon as. And in fact, we really try to move towards the negative side of intervention intensity as soon as possible, working towards mobilization, working towards removing lines and catheters and things like that. So you see over time, there's a widening gap in the in intervention intensity between the two groups. Um, and this is where as intensive care, I think has its largest payoff because we do, uh, at the very beginning, we do move very quickly and try to try to restore some degree of homeostasis or stability uh, right off the bat. But after that, we start getting out of the patient's way quickly. So what would that look like? Well, in this patient's case, um, we go from that just-in-case mentality, they might tire out mentality, and this is where minimally invasive and maximally attentive comes into play. If this patient needs peripheral pressors, maybe we start with peripheral vasopressors, high-flow nasal cannula, at least as a trial before we move towards the quote-unquote might tire out mindset. Um, we know that abnormalities are going to be part of our, abnormalities are part of our normal, um, and we have to sort of integrate that, those findings into our everyday care um, and we, we know that we don't understand all mechanisms of physiologic adaptation of severe disease, uh, and, and that what's, that's what allows us to abide some degree of abnormality. When we think about then sort of this growing web of care and web of interventions that might unfold, we're, we move from a mindset of what might we do to what are the few things that we should do that'll make a meaningful difference. Uh, and so this is what we mean by essentialism or essentialism uh, as, as in the popular book, uh, not like the classical form of essentialism, but really just focusing what are the few things that actually matter in terms of managing the disease process and then restoring this patient's humanity. Um, and that's where the ABCDEF a, bundle comes into play. Um, so those two things really tie in nicely. Now, despite all that, we may end up in the same place where we have escalating organ failures and increased invasiveness or sort of a tendency towards increased invasiveness. And this is a signal for us to recalibrate the care that we're delivering. Um, so we may, this is the time to revisit the goals with the patient to, to sort of um, share our progress of how far we've come and, and, and where the possible outcomes. So we really need to re-engage at this point in shared decision-making maybe even offer comfort care and revisit the expectations that we laid out when we decided upon potentially a time-limited trial of care. The end result of this care path, um, the, I, I should say the intermediate but important results of this care path are potentially decreased suffering and complications and increased consciousness and dignity. In the end, our survival odds may not have changed that much, but look at the pathway that we, that we uh, went on to get there as opposed to the, the initial pathway. We're looking at these two models of care as if they are um, diametrically opposed um, or, or that they're isolated from one another. In reality, that's kind of a false dichotomy and, and there's a significant amount of overlap between the two uh, care models. It's just more about trying to engage this intensive care principles whenever possible. Um, so our goal is not to abandon our critical care practices, but just to recalibrate them to be a, at the appropriate stage uh, and the appropriate invasiveness for what the patient needs and what we potentially can offer with the in interventions that we have. So in order to do that, we need to think a little bit more carefully about what intensive care practices actually look like, um, and then uh, what, what are the principles underlying them. I think it's pretty easy to see that minimalism is a core uh, of, of this philosophy, um, and it is, uh, it is necessary but not sufficient. 
the things that need to come along with it is really solid clinical mastery, uh, just complete physiologic and medical mastery uh, within critical care uh, as, as much as possible. This takes experience, this takes time. Um, it, it also requires a higher degree of risk tolerance than what you may be used to or, than, or, or what is, uh, I, I should say, what is commonly accepted. And then finally, all of this is for the sole goal of restoring humanism whenever possible. So the foundations here are really to make that happen. So how might, how might you do this? If this is something that appeals to you, how do you move in this direction? How might you become as intensivist? As I alluded to, clinical mastery is absolutely a prerequisite. Um, the great thing about this uh, concept or this movement, if you want to say, is that people, uh, even young young uh, trainees, are really interested in this in these ideas. So residents and fellows, even medical students, find these ideas really appealing, um, and it's okay for them to advocate for it. But realistically, they're not in a position to be able to fully. Um, practice this way until they understand natural history of disease, what are typical outcomes of critical care diseases, what are extraordinary outcomes, and really have a firm understanding of processes of care. You can't walk into the ICU on your day one and say, you know, less is more, so we're not going to do this, that, or the other. It really takes uh, some calibration over time, and it's something that I'm still, you know, even myself working on developing uh, the appropriate level of titration of uh, invasiveness or, or, or minimalism. How might one develop risk tolerance? This is really difficult. Um, in some ways, people come with the risk tolerance uh, that they have and, and the how much we can modify it may be limited. Um, but there's a couple of key concepts that I think we need to keep in mind and that, that should help us all maybe move in a direction of having higher risk tolerance. This is the view of, let's say, vital signs, um, physiologic parameters, lab values. Um, if we think about what we accept, we have this well-defined area of normal, a thin line of abnormality that we may accept, and we assume everything else is associated with morbidity and mortality. My suspicion is the world really probably looks more like this. Um, there's a lot of things that are abnormal in subtle ways or in minor ways that may actually be either acceptable or possibly even preferable. Think about not, tight, not having tight glucose control, not um, trying to too tightly control fevers, permissive hypercapnia, um, and overall just moving away from trying to um, cosmetically repair the lab page in, in the EMR or cosmetically try to improve what the monitor looks like uh, that's over the patient's bed. So this is against some of the worst tendencies in medicine towards normalization fallacy, just trying to make everything move, moving towards normal and sort of naively feeling like that's def definitely going to be the, you know, towards the patient's benefit. And I think a really good example of this is uh, early goal-directed therapy for sepsis um, really pushed was really trying to push parameters towards normal or supernormal, and, and we've now found out that that has probably not much of an advantage over usual care, and, and in some cases, perhaps a disadvantage. The next thing is uh, that, that helps us leverage uh, a higher tendency towards risk tolerance is understanding what effects our interventions actually have on patients. So most of us the, our worldview is that um, if we add an intervention to a patient, there's a large upside to it and a small, easily understandable fixed downside. And this is what creates a lot of tendencies towards commission bias. Well, it's going to be better if I do something. It'll give us a, a better opportunity to, to uh, make improvements upon this patient's uh, trajectory. I think particularly in critical care, we know that's not really the case. 
Um, there's not a large evidence base of things that are clearly beneficial. Um, the effect sizes are small and the downsides of additive interventions are definitely larger than what we per perceive them to be. And this is just human nature, unfortunately. So when the, when the evidence is sparse, we really have to have a strong rationale for any additive intervention as the risk benefit ratio is really unclear, or at least from a Bayesian standpoint, unfavorable. Supportive evidence of this includes the fact that we've had few, maybe no pharmacologic phase three trials in critical care that have been shown to be uh, truly positive over the past 20 years. Um, and another example is to think about all the promises of the early pandemic and all the medicines that were supposed to make everyone better, like convalescent plasma, like hydroxychloroquine, all these things that got us all very distracted from providing the best supportive care that we could provide, which at this point, I think we can say, aside from steroids, is probably the best intervention that we have. Finally, um, I just want to bring this back to focusing on the humanistic part of things, because this is ultimately the goal is to elevate humanism in this case. To some degree, Zentensivism, if we think about it as a cognitive framework, can feel it's a little bit too focused on clinical reasoning skills or kind of just trying to be, you know, a little bit smarter or more savvy about the way to provide care. But the goal is always to maintain or restore dignity, alleviate suffering, and elevate humanism. Um, and the important ways to do this is to not place tubes in the way of conversations. One of my favorite quotes in all of ICU that I've ever heard is, two weeks in the ICU can save you one hour of difficult conversation. And that is a mindset that we need to move away from. So now if you as a practitioner feel like this is a worthwhile endeavor, but you're like, you know, I work in a system, I don't work, I'm not in a solo practice and I need to be able to inspire these behaviors and others. How might we move towards this intensive care unit and this intensive community? There are three domains we really need to consider, education, research, and our health systems. So from an educational standpoint, again, the QR codes are coming back. There's great references on all these slides. Um, from an educational standpoint, we really need to move towards rewarding deliberate, thoughtful inaction. Um, so this is less of a good catch mindset and more of a, I really love that you didn't feel obligated to do this reflex intervention that is often done in this situation. Um, and that is something that is not a common practice for most of us medical educators. And I, uh, you know, it's something that I'm working on every day myself. The next thing is as a uh, educational community, we have to normalize that uncertainty is part of our lives and it's something that's not gonna go away. Um, and then understand that we may not necessarily need to have the answer to every question that, that exists. Um, and part of this is sort of getting out of what I would call the multiple choice question mindset. Um, not everything has a right answer. Sometimes the answer is maybe I should just observe or maybe I should just uh, passively allow this mild abnormality rather than drilling down into it because it's going to distract me from things I need to be focused on. And then finally, when we're thinking about developing clinical reasoning skills, we really need to focus on base rates of disease and Bayesian reasoning. Um, we could look for a pulmonary embolism and we could look for a acute coronary syndrome on every patient that comes to the unit, but that doesn't really make any sense from a base rate of illness standpoint and based on the presenting symptoms that, that patients come to us with. From a research standpoint, there are some really exciting uh, examples uh, of things that we can be doing and, and this should, could inspire us to do similar things in the future. So when we think about uh, research, we can think about performing studies that in, involve reduced exposure to, to therapies. And one great example of this recently was the 65 trial done in the UK, looking at a MAP uh, mean arterial pressure goal of 60 versus 65 and patients greater than age 65 with uh, vasodilatory shock. That's a, a, a subtle change, but I think an important thing to study is um, what if we just do a little bit less? 
Um, and, and the cumulative effect of doing a little bit less than a lot of domains could have a large impact on the way that we provide care. We also need to learn from patients who have care limitations in place. What happens to the patients who are do not intubate? Um, do they actually do worse? In some cases, they may not. And we, we have to be a little bit maybe more innovative with uh, this may, may this may teach us to be a little bit more innovative with uh, non-invasive respiratory support, for instance, or anything that pushes us towards something that's not within the patient's goals of care. If we learn, if we can learn from that group of patients as a whole, we may learn from patients. We le may learn ways to take care of patients who don't have those care limitations. And then finally, um, it's very intentional that I'm beating early goal-directed palliation into everyone's heads because um, involving. Uh, palliative medicine consultants, or at least having a palliative medicine mindset when you're providing critical care, I think is going to be a really crucial part of all of this um, in terms of setting appropriate expectations that are still value appropriate to the patient. When we're designing our health systems, there's a few things that we need to think about. Um, the designs of our ICUs, by and large, are not with the patient in mind. Um, we need to consider their, their needs holistically. We need to consider how do we facilitate healthy visitation? And obviously we've learned that restricting visitation during COVID has been really challenging and probably harmful. Um, at least that's my take on it. Um, but also just the physical spaces that we provide care and how can we make those, those work better for the patients? I will tell you that we have some really, really tiny rooms in some of the places that I work and it's, uh, um, it's definitely not good for anybody that's providing care for the patient, it makes things difficult um, and, and uh, makes you really aware of the surroundings and, and the ICU, that's not necessarily a good thing. When we think about multi-professional education uh, as, as a way to leverage some intensive skills, we really need to help our uh, allied health professionals, particularly nurses, respiratory therapists, um, and, and other providers understand why it might be a good idea not to act on mild, abnormal, mild abnormalities that they might call us about. Um, the typical example is the potassium is mildly low. We definitely need to do something about that, right? Um, so. We need to be able to educate our, our, our team members on why it's okay not to try to drive everything towards normal, why to let things be you know, a little bit quasi-abnormal sometimes, and uh, that will help us get out of that stimulus-response relationship uh, with requests from, from allied health professionals. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, uh, health professionals that we can really learn from are pharmacists because they're really good at telling us all the ways to Maybe that this medicine is not going to help in this situation. And I think if they can really frame it from, for us in an efficacy standpoint, from an effic efficacy standpoint, or from a potential harm standpoint, then I think that would really resonate with a lot of us. Finally, the incentive structures that are in place have a large, uh, play a large role in some of these decision, medical decisions that we make. Um, but in this case, the, the, the battle towards decreasing length of stay might actually be on our side here. Um, because it may incentivize us to clarify goals sooner, to in involve palliative services sooner, things that'll move us in a direction of, of safely doing less. So the most important thing to take away from all this is that doing less to patients actually takes a lot more effort. It is very, very easy to behave in a stimulus response fashion with most of the issues that, that, are, that are presented to us. We're bombarded with hundreds or thousands of data points a day on patients. And the tendency is for us to want to, or feel like we need to do something about this. And it's really a strain to sit tight and, and not act in that way. If you want to be successful at this approach, it, uh, it really takes a lot of work from a metacognitive standpoint. And what I mean by that is if I'm going to do less, I need to take the time to explain it to the nurse, the respiratory therapist, the patient, the patient's family, my trainees, 
why it's safe and why it's reasonable to do that in this instance. Um, and that is something that takes way more time than just putting a potassium order in or putting a Lasix order in or sending another lactate. Um, so those are all the things that um, they take a lot more effort. But my impression of that is this is a moral imperative to do this. And that is why I think this is worthwhile. If you are interested in learning any more about some of these ideas, uh, I know this the, the second, um, pardon me, the first paper on the page was shared with you. The second was something that we wrote early in the pandemic and I'm uh, reachable at all of the, all of the uh, sources down in the bottom right there. Um, thank you all for listening today. Um, I appreciate you taking out the time and I would love to answer any questions or, or hear any feedback that you might have.